Shalom Mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. It means family. And we're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart. Made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar. Oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. My guest, Sandy Toplinsky, is a Jewish believer in the Messiah, an Israeli, and she has got a fresh approach in her book, Why Still Care About Israel? And you may think, well, yeah, why should I still care about Israel? What about the Palestinians? What about everything's new creation? What about, I'm not even interested in an old covenant anymore, especially the biblical feasts. This is a fresh approach for a very important season. Why do I say it's an important season? I agree with the Orthodox rabbis who say we are in the period of time in which we are beginning to hear the footsteps of Messiah. He's about ready to return. And just as Israel and the Jewish people were front and center at his first coming, Israel and the Jewish people will be front and center at his return. Uh, Sandy, I want everyone to get to know you a little bit. Uh, there's some things that I found out about you that I've never discussed with you that are, that are really interesting. But uh, first things first. Uh, how did you, as a Jew, become a believer in the Messiah? Give me the uh, the rabbinic answer where you have to stand on one foot, and therefore it can't be long. Through the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's too short, but okay. <laughs> uh, long story short, I w- uh, was raised in an Orthodox Jewish environment in the United States, and um, uh, were both of your parents Jewish? Both of my, all four of my grandparents are Jewish. Yeah, you, you must give you must give rabbis a conniption over that. They, they, I had I had one rabbi say to me recently, "Well, you can't be Jewish. None of those people that call themselves Jews that believe in Jesus are Jewish." And I said, "Yes, yeah, some of my best friends are Jewish. My mother, my father, my grandparents on both sides. As a matter of fact, my DNA they just traced it back all the way to the tribe of Judah." <laughs> but anyway, so say. Uh, Sandy, what really started you in your search for Yeshua? It was the fact, Sid, that I was raised in the synagogue and did have a uh, a heart cry for God, and yet I did not see the ability within the synagogue, including the most esteemed rabbi and elders, I did not see the ability to carry out that which we were commanded to do, specifically as we would pray the Shema and that which follows it three times a day, I was deeply convicted by the reality that I could not love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my soul's strength and might, no matter how hard I tried. And I could not have the kind of intimate relationship with the creator of the universe demonstrated by my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, uh, the prophets, and 
the answer that, that I was given was that, well, times have changed. We don't have a holy temple in Jerusalem anymore, and so God doesn't require the same type of behavior from us. Didn't satisfy me deep down. Nowhere in the scriptures that I had studied did I see an exemption to be made for the distant future when the Jewish people would not have a holy temple anymore that would exempt us from fulfilling the, his holy commands. And so as a result of my spiritual discontent, I began searching for God in my college years through all kinds of religions, Eastern, New Age, you name it, and was eventually presented with a New Testament um, to which I reacted very negatively. For those that don't understand, why did you react negatively towards a New Testament? Because I was brought up, despite my participation in a, in a religious synagogue community, the neighborhood that I was brought up in was almost entirely Gentile and actually very overtly anti-Semitic. So I grew up with being called a Christ killer. I was physically assaulted on a regular basis. Thankfully, I was always big for my age, so I fought back. <laughs> the boys would leave me alone. But I grew up in a very anti-Semitic environment, and so the last thing I expected was that whoever this Jesus was would offer a way of peace or love or genuine relationship with God as I knew God. But when I did read the scriptures for the first time, not under the influence of any organization or any Jewish missionaries or any type of church, when I studied it myself, apart from the rabbis, compared it with the Hebrew scriptures that I had some familiarity with from my earlier upbringing, and encountered the reality. And when I say reality, Sid, I mean I sensed a presence of love and life, almost jumping off the words of those pages of the New Testament into my spirit that was completely incomparable to anything I'd read from all of these other Eastern religions I was exploring. Uh, the reality that the New Testament was a Jewish book I couldn't deny it, and so I kind of gobbled through it, compared the New Testament scriptures with prophetic passages in the Hebrew scriptures, and by God's grace came to the understanding that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah. Now, the thing that really intrigues me, well, first of all, when you became a believer, there was a move of God's Spirit among a number of Jewish people at that time, but it still was a small percentage of Jewish people that believed in Jesus uh, at that time. Uh, how did you overcome your, your conscience over betraying your heritage? The only answer that I can tell you that would be honest is that when I came to believe that Yeshua was the Messiah and I prayed to my God, to restore me in relationship to him through what his Messiah had done for me, that he then filled me with such a fire and a passion for him that concern with what my family would think or peers, although that was a concern and did trouble me, but it was so far outweighed by having peace 
with God and by having purpose to my life and by seeing that so many of my people um, were still struggling to understand who they were, what God's purpose for the Jewish people is, what God's purpose for Israel is, how it is that we're called to walk with him, that um, God changed my heart and um, uh, gave me a a fire for reaching them in love and uh, by his grace, humility. God loves the uns- those who do not know uh, Yeshua is Messiah just as much as he loves those who do know Yeshua is Messiah. And, and so that overshadows, by God's grace, um, our uh, concern with our own rejection or um, the treatment that we might get from oh, Okay. You become a believer. You become spirit-filled. And then you're at the infancy or the beginning stages of the Vineyard Movement uh, with John Wimber. That had to be so exciting. Uh, From what I understand, they were almost shocked there were so many miracles happening. What were those early days like? (laughs) Oh, Sid, um, we lived in an environment of daily miracles. We were taught by... Our, uh, our our pastor John uh, to carry God's heart to uh, keep one ear tuned to the Holy Spirit at all times. He used to say, "Everybody gets to play the signs and wonders and miracles. The supernatural is what we're all called to. It's not reserved for apostles or those who would call themselves apostles and prophets and 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 high level church leaders. It's for everybody." Uh, Sandy, I want to go back to that because it just intrigues me. That was a major outbreak uh, of the Holy Spirit that literally uh, the vineyard churches, uh, that's where they started, and then they spread all over the world. Uh, But you have a fresh approach in the most important book you've written titled, Why Still Care About Israel? Why should a Christian— be interested in this, especially if they're not Jewish. I think, Sid, that the key here is Christian. Anybody who follows Jesus Christ, I would hope, would want to love what he loves, would want to be where he is. And if we read the Bible with an open mind and heart, and with integrity for God being uh, supreme, and, and for God's Word being His Word, and not what we want to make it into, but His Word, then I don't understand how a Christian can't capture God's heart of love and passion based on who God is, not on who the Jews are, God's covenant that He affirms in the New Testament through Yeshua, And in having an intimate relationship with the Christ who Christians follow, uh, it it surprises me when occasionally I do hear some say, well, I've never experienced or... I'll tell you what concerns me. Uh, We are at a major dividing line between phony Christians and real Christians. And I believe the issue... The major, actually, even the single dividing line, as I've studied Scripture and as Sandy has, 
will be your position on the Jew in Israel. It will not be popular to stand up for the Jew in Israel. The whole world is starting to go. In fact, the Bible says all the nations of the world are going to turn against Israel. And what are you going to do? I want you to be on the right side of the fence. There's coming a major outpouring of God's Spirit, a major outpouring of miracles, a major outpouring of blessings for those that are speaking God's Word and are on God's side. I want you to have this book, and I've got an artist rendering like you've never seen before. It's framed, and it's, uh, it's the most amazing picture I have ever seen. It captures the compassion of Jesus for the Jewish people. It's an Orthodox Jew with his hand praying at the Western Wall. And you see on the other side of the wall, Jesus is touching right where his hand is and praying as fervently that the spiritual scales come off of his eyes. It will give you such a love for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. I want you to have this beautiful artist rendering and the book, Why Still Care About Israel, for a gift of $40. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. Sandy, you have researched your book to such a degree, and you have material in your book that is in no other book, uh, why did you so meticulously have so many footnotes that you couldn't even put them all in the book? You had to put it on another web page. <laughs> I felt that Christians deserved to have the truth, and that in today's media, we are saturated with untruths. And we are saturated with opinions that are postured as, as documented fact, when sadly that's not the case. I used to be an attorney many years ago, and, and so uh, I, the Lord stirred me to utilize um, the, uh, my attorney background to amass as objectively as possible and as thoroughly as possible hard, cold facts so that people could check the check the sources out for themselves, because what I say in this book is so different in so many ways from what we hear through mainstream and even non-mainstream media. The, the social media is flooded with misinformation about Israel. And uh, How about these new theologies that are coming across, and how about uh, the, young, the young kids in the, in the colleges now are being trained to be against the aggressor, Israel, uh, and not to mention the Islamist awakening that's going on, and not to mention, as President Obama said, America's no longer a Christian nation. All of these things are colliding together for this moment for Christians to have to make a decision. That's why your book, Why Still Care About Israel, is so relevant. Uh, tell me about these uh, new theologies. Well, the new theologies that are going around the world, sadly, have been designed, many of them, intentionally to undercut Christian support of Israel. Now, I'm not speaking opinion. You can 
People can go online. They can get my book. They can see for themselves how some of these theologies are quite upfront in what they're doing. The theologies stem from what is broadly called fulfillment theology. Fulfillment theology, to to simplify here for the sake of being on the air, teaches that all of the prophetic promises in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New, the New Testament are fulfilled in the person of Jesus himself. That means that all of the prophecies pertaining to Israel are already fulfilled. That means that God's covenant to Israel, to the Jewish people as a nation, are already fulfilled in Jesus. And so as you can see, this variant of fulfillment theology, in effect, replaces Israel with Jesus Christ himself. It used to be that the church replaced Israel, but now the church only indirectly replaces Israel insofar as believers are positioned in Messiah. What makes this theology dangerous, Sid, is that it is based on just a grain of truth. In Matthew 5, Yeshua says he's come to fulfill the, the scriptures, and he is the word. But you don't build a theology from one verse that runs contrary to the overall teachings of the scriptures. Yeah, give, give me some examples. For instance, uh, the World Council of Churches. Uh, and, some, and, and, and I'm shocked. Uh, I, I looked up what some churches, major mainline denominations are doing, and they're saying none of the money in their pensions, which are billions of dollars, can be invested in any company that invests in Israel. I couldn't go to a church like that. No, well, neither could I. Um, The World Council of Churches says that it is the leading ecumenical voice for Christians around the world, and they represent over 550 million Christians. They concluded, as reported in a Ynet News article dated March 7, 2011, their official position is that the Jewish state is, quote, a sin, and that it is incumbent upon Christians to to resist Israel's uh, place in the land as a Christian duty. Uh, What about the National Council of Churches? What's their position? The National Council of Churches doesn't come out too too much differently, uh, I'm sorry to say. National Council of Churches is composed of over 45 million believers in over 100,000 evangelical and other denominational organizations. They have harshly, harshly condemned the Jewish state for its alleged treatment of, ta- of Palestinians and called for a resolution that would shrink Israel down to a size that all military authorities in the West and even in Israel, of course, agree would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to defend. The National Council of Churches takes a position supportive of the Palestinians, but not at, in any meaningful way supportive of Israel, because the National Council of Churches does not believe as a whole that God's covenant to the Jewish people still stands in the New Testament. Explain why his covenant with the Jewish people is 
so sacred that it still stands? Well, we often find, Sid, that it's right in the context of Israel's sinning against God that he reaffirms his covenant with her. For example, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 60. Israel has sinned grievously against God, and he says, I will remember the covenant made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. In Jeremiah 31, once again, we have the Israelites in a devastated condition. They're in exile on account of their sin, and it's in that context that God again reaffirms that his covenant with Israel will last until the sun stops shining and the moon stops shining and until the depths of the earth can be plummeted. And so, and so over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures, God reaffirms his covenant with Israel, and he also affirms it in the new covenant, Romans 9 through 11. Paul's masterful treatise about how God's covenant with Israel still stands, even in the New Covenant. He says, the Apostle Paul writes, Has God rejected his people? No, God forbid. And then he goes on to write uh, several verses later, God's gifts and his promises are irrevocable. God's covenant is irrevocable. And then Jesus himself implicitly reaffirms his covenant with the Jewish people in Acts chapter 1, when he's talking about the kingdom coming, which implies clearly, it does more than implies, it's absolutely in, implicit that that kingdom is going to include the fullness of God's covenant with Israel. Even through the book of Revelation, implicitly the New Testament assumes that the reader is aware of all of God's previous affirmations of his covenant with Israel, and there's never, never an, an indication in the New Testament that God's covenant with Israel has been revoked. Now, where some people would say that uh, the Apostle Paul is suggesting the covenant no longer stands, what we find is that people are inevitably taking isolated verses way out of context and not considering uh, Paul's overall message in which those very same verses are really used to affirm God's covenant with the Jewish people. Now, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the last days and the dividing of nations, uh, just as a shepherd would know the difference between a goat and a sheep. Uh, Jesus says there'll be goat nations, uh, or those that have a mind of their own, and sheep nations, those that follow the shepherd. What is the dividing line that Jesus speaks of? Well, in context, he's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about Israel. The context is that the disciples have just asked him what will be the sign of his return and the sign of the, the, the end of times. And he's answering their question when he talks of his brethren, how his brethren have been treated. And he says, when you fed me when I was hungry, when you gave me food, when you gave me drink, when you gave me clothes, when you, when you visited me in, in prison, I took note of that, and I reward you for that. And come enter into my presence. Be among my sheep. And then he says, he'll be asked, when, 
by, by those who are so rewarded. When, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or when did we see you naked or sick or in prison? And he says, inasmuch as you have extended these kindnesses to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. And Gentile Christian Bible scholars who are not disposed favorably towards Israel often still interpret this passage as referring fundamentally to Israel. Sandra, let's get right into some very, very basic things. The Abrahamic Covenant. Many are saying it is conditional. What is the Abrahamic Covenant? Why is it important? And why is it unconditional? The Abrahamic Covenant, Sid, as you know, begins in Genesis 12, chapters 1 through 3. Most people are familiar with that passage. God tells Abraham to leave his country, go to a land that God will show him, and promises that he will bless Abraham and make his name great, and that God will bless those who bless Abraham, but whoever curses him, God will curse. Yet all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now, time goes on, and Abraham approaches God at one point in Genesis 15, and he has no children, and he hasn't settled in the land, and he asks God, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? God answers him, and in an extremely unique way, what he does is he instructs Abraham to slaughter and to sacrifice different pieces of animals and to lay their cut-up bodies on the ground. Then God puts Abraham into a spirit-induced sleep, And God himself, according to the scriptures, passes as fire between the pieces. Now, this ritual, which sounds strange to us in the 21st century, was actually the identical procedure used in Abraham's day to formalize a legal covenant. Animals were cut up. Covenanting parties would walk between the pieces in order to promise that their oath to one another would be performed. But what's essential? Especially important about this transaction with Abraham is that Abraham did not walk between the pieces, only God himself as holy fire walked between the pieces. What that meant, according to the laws of the day, is that the covenant that was being made between God and Abraham was unconditional, meaning that Abraham would not have to do anything in order for the covenant to be fulfilled God was the one who would do it all. The unconditional, the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant should demonstrate to us one of God's most supreme acts of mercy and grace. Because through Abraham, all families of the earth are blessed. God's blessing of the nations of the Gentiles into the Jewish-rooted household of faith, into covenant with God, is by mercy and grace. And so that's why we can see that Abraham and his descendants sin. They don't always follow. We don't always follow the Mosaic law, let alone God's new covenant words. But by mercy and grace, God has promised on his word alone that he will fulfill and bring to completion his promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. Later on in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, God promises that Isaac will inherit the covenant, and specifically not Ishmael, although Ishmael will get blessed, 
and that Jacob in Genesis 28 will inherit the covenant and not Esau. And, and of course, these are the fathers of the Arabs will not inherit it, and that uh, the Jewish people will. It's very clear to me. How does Galatians 3 tie in with that? Well, Galatians 3 affirms what God did in, in the book of Genesis. Galatians 3 says that the promise that God made to Abraham came before the giving of the law and therefore cannot be altered by what transpires in connection with the law. More simply put, it means that if the Jewish people sin, God's covenant with them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still stands. Uh, Speaking of still standing... Just the the Genesis twelve three where God says, "I'll bless those who bless the Jewish people. I will curse those who curse them." Uh, tell us a little bit of history, just briefly, of nations that have gone against the Jew in Israel and what's happened to them. Well, we see that the blessing and curse verse actually goes into effect almost immediately when Abraham deals with King Abimelech in Egypt, and um, Abimelech is first cursed and then blessed on account of his treatment towards Abraham and Sarah. But, and we can follow that trend through the scriptures, but in post-Bible history, we can trace how nations, sadly, have more often cursed than blessed the Jewish people, and how that has been seemingly connected with their downfall soon thereafter, beginning with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, after it overtook Israel, began to enact virulently and violently anti-Jewish and anti-Messianic Jewish laws. Not long thereafter, the Roman Empire fell. We can go on in history to the Crusades, sponsored mostly by England and France. They dispatched by popes. They sent their soldiers down to liberate Jerusalem, but liberate, unfortunately, also meant liquidate multitudes of unarmed Jews and and Muslims along the way. Well, shortly after that, England and France turned their weapons against each other in the Hundred Years' War. Then we can go on to the Golden Age of Spain, where many, many Jewish people found refuge for hundreds of years. And then, as you know, in connection with the Spanish Inquisitions uh, in the uh, 1300s, 1400s, Jewish people in Spain were forced to either convert or leave the country. Shortly after that, the Spanish Empire fell, never again to be resurrected in history. And we have the British Empire. Many, many Jewish people found refuge in the British uh, Isles uh, 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 hundreds of years ago. And as long as England treated the Jewish population well, things went well for her. Her empire expanded. It was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. But then England sadly uh, made uh, decisions that turned against the Jews, that turned against Israel in particular, because England played a key role in the restoration of Israel as a nation-state, but was not sadly always faithful to the responsibility given her, and shortly thereafter, the British Empire fell apart. Then we go on to the former Soviet Union, (laughs) which uh, treated the Jewish population there very cruelly. Shortly 
after uh, there was a prolonged campaign by the West for the USSR to uh, allow the Jewish population to emigrate and to loosen its grip uh, on the Jewish people, the Soviet Union became the former Soviet Union when it imploded from within. And how about Germany when they turned against the Jew with the Holocaust? Well, Germany certainly suffered greatly, but thankfully a critical mass remnant of Christians sincerely repented afterwards and and has blessed Israel. And as you know, Germany is relatively prosperous among Russians. Western nations today and, and doing fairly well. So, so that Genesis twelve three, I will curse those who curse the Jewish people. We saw Germany cursed, then they turned around to bless the Jewish people, then we saw Germany blessed. Um, now, uh, what about all the turmoil going on in Arab countries now? Uh, what's causing all that? Well, I I think that we have to say that one reason is the fact that from the beginning, the Arab Muslim nations of the Middle East and North Africa have all cursed the day of Israel's rebirth. They continue to this day to issue curse upon curse over Israel and Jewish people worldwide. And that's a good part of the reason why they're in the condition that they're in. I have documented uh, through friends of mine, and actually you cover this in your brand new book because it's just so well documented, uh, that every time the United States as a nation goes against Israel, there there's either an economic uh, judgment or, uh, or a catastrophe of an earthquake or tornado or flooding. I mean, it's, it's the most phenomenal thing. And, and I no doubt the reason the U.S., is the most blessed country in the world, is we have been a friend from the very inception of our country, of Israel. But this works for families, too. I want you to get the best research book that covers exactly where we are, updated to the minute, documented. Everything Sandy says is documented. The book is called Why Still Care About Israel. You must understand this. To be on God's side in the last days, we're making the book and this beautiful artist rendering in a frame available for a gift of $40. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. We want everyone, everywhere, to be on God's side in the last days. That's why I'm so excited about probably the most unique and fresh approach covering the end times in reference to the Jew, Israel, and the church. The book is called Why Still Care About Israel. And Israel, if you haven't noticed, that tiny little country that's about the size of Rhode Island, you can't open a newspaper anywhere in the world without that nation being addressed. And just as Israel was front and center stage at the first coming of Jesus, well, we're in the footsteps of Messiah, according to the Orthodox Jewish community. The Messiah is ready to return, according to the Christian community. Just as the, uh, the Israel was front and center at the first coming of Jesus, Israel is front and center at the return of Jesus. Now, I have on the telephone 
a Messianic Jewish believer, Sandy Toplinsky. She's Israeli and American. She is an attorney. Uh, And uh, Sandy, I have to tell you, you have documented every statement that you make in this book, Why Still Care About Israel. Uh, And you went almost overboard on the documentation. So no one will think it's just opinion. Uh, One of the most important questions, I believe, to God right now is who owns the land of Israel? The Jewish people? the Palestinians, who? Well, according to God's word, Psalm 105, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance, verses 8 through 11. According to the scriptures, God has given Israel covenantal stewardship of the land of Israel forever. Now, if we want to look to non-biblical sources, historically, the Jewish people of and among all other people groups in the world, according to the principles of customary international law, the Jewish people have a legal right to the land of Israel. Why do I say that? Because according to customary international law, uh, people uh, who have the best claim to any given piece of land are the people who last legally exercised sovereign control over that land. The last legal owners of the land of Israel were the Jewish people. In fact, there has been a continuous Jewish presence in the land of Israel for thousands of years. Now, not only do we have customary international law, but back in the early 20th century, after World War I, European nations came together and formed international agreements which established a future Jewish homeland in what was then called Palestine. By the way, where did the name Palestine come from? Uh, And and, uh, do they have a traceable uh, uh, ancient tie to the land of Israel? You read my mind. (laughs) Palestine. Even though the land was called Palestine, that does, has nothing to do with the Palestinians of today. The Romans renamed Israel Palestine as an insult in mocking remembrance of the Jews' ancient enemy, the Philistines, who were already extinct by the time the Romans renamed Israel Palestine. The Palestinians of today... So so what you're saying is the Jews and any Arabs that might have been there were all called Palestinians at that time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, There were Palestinian Jews, there were Palestinian Arabs. Israel was created as a Jewish state, and so, uh, as you know, Israel has a large, large, significant Arab population... Israel's a democracy. Arab Israelis have the same rights as, as Jewish Israelis, and those Arab Israelis are the descendants of the Palestinian Arabs who lived in the country before Israel was created as a modern-day state. 
the key here is that there were very few other occupants of the land when Israel uh, became a nation and during the process of uh, the nations preparing for Israel to become an independent sovereign state. There were approximately 300,000 individuals in the entire land of Israel, which actually included about twice as much territory as it does now. And there were very, very, very few uh, population centers. And so during the time that the Jewish people, who were the last legal owners of the land, were present and to live in and inhabit the land, the land had remained mostly barren and a wasteland. Yes, there were some Arab villages, but those villages did not really become bustling, thriving hubs of any kind until after the early Jewish pioneers came back to Israel, began to work the land. I believe God anointed them to do so. It seemed that nobody else had been able to cause the, the deserts and the swamplands to turn into blossoming fields and, and cities. But as the Jewish people came back and rolled up their sleeves and uh, began to create a a state by God's grace that attracted many Bedouin-type Arabs in order to get better jobs, in order to get better medical care, in order to get their children educated. And, and that continues to this day, and, and I see that even as an Israeli, where many Arab... Is that almost equal to uh, many uh, people from south of the border come to the United States because we made a great country here, uh, just as Israel made a great country? Well, there's certainly a parallel. Absolutely, there's a parallel. And and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that um, if people come in peace. Desiring to contribute to a country. So, so what you're saying is that this huge Palestinian population uh, weren't even they, their ancestors weren't even there in in what was called Palestine. Like for instance, Arafat, he came from Egypt. He did. It's estimated that about six hundred and fifty thousand Arabs fled when the Jewish state was created into what are called refugee areas now. But even among that number, probably the majority came from outside the land of Israel only after the Jewish Zionist pioneers had made headway in bringing um, modern, up-to-date Western civilization type of infrastructure to what was essentially a desert wasteland and swampland. You know what I I find fascinating, Sandy, is that uh, when the Jewish people who lived in the Arab lands were uprooted, they left with the clothing on their back, nothing, and Israel made them, as we Jewish people say, a mensch, a real human. They took care of their own. Now, when the Arabs uh, uh, fled uh, the land that they had, they weren't reestablished in the Arab countries who had so much more money. How come? Why, why did they leave them in squalor like that? No Arab state would take in the refugees specifically in order to leave them in place as a local population that could be used in the political, the diplomatic, and the military realm to help destroy Israel. The Palestinians have always 
operated in connection with the larger Pan-Arab plan, which remains to this day to destroy the state of Israel. Answer this question. It looks like there will be a Palestinian state. If there is a Palestinian uh, state, uh, how in the world can they exist if their goal is to wipe Israel off the face of the map? I don't understand the the longer-term thinking. Well, they don't operate in isolation. They gain their weapon supplies and their personnel from all over the Arab uh, Islamist world. Uh, The Palestinians have historically been not at the forefront, but they have been uh, the ones that have sadly been manipulated by surrounding Arab nations to do their bidding uh, to serve again as a local platform from which an all-out war against Israel can be launched. But you're right. Without building a state, without um, having a goal in life other than the destruction of another state, a people group languishes and doesn't prosper. And that's exactly what we see happening, despite the fact that the United States, for example, spends approximately $400 million a year to build infrastructure within the Palestinian Authority in Gaza, and yet there's poverty and squalor and uh, corruption within both realms that have prevented most Palestinians from having any kind of decent life other than having as their goal the destruction of Israel. We want everyone, everywhere, to understand what replacement theology is and to be able to know what God's position is. You see, replacement theology is the basic belief. Uh, one way of looking at it is that the Jews have inherited today all the curses, and the church has inherited today all of the blessings. But you cannot read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and come up with that lie. For instance, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just briefly, Sandy Toplinski, uh, I am interviewing her on this wonderful, complete, fresh approach to the question and the title of the book, Why Still Care About Israel? Sandy, tell me a little bit of what uh, can be gleaned from Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is chock full of God's heart for Israel, uh, that he wants his people, the Christian church, to know about and to carry. Romans 9 through 11 teaches us that um, God is, God himself carries a sorrow in his heart uh, for Israel's salvation, that he calls us to pray for Israel's salvation, that in fact there is coming a time when Israel will be saved, and that he has not rejected his people, that he has called the Gentile Christian church to pray for his people, to uh, not be ignorant or arrogant, depending on your translation, toward the Jewish people, but to understand that they have been grafted like um, olive tree branches into a uh, an olive tree that is rooted in a Jewish 
soil that's rooted uh, in the Jewish patriarchs and the Jewish scriptures and in um, the God of Israel. I, I love it in Romans 9. It says that the Jewish people are loved on account of the fathers. What does God mean by that? Well, what he says is that he loves them because of the covenant that he made with our fathers. In uh, Deuteronomy 7, God says that he chose and loved Israel because he chose and loved Israel. (laughs) That's as much as he's going to tell us. It's because he chose to make covenant with our fathers and that that covenant still stands as Romans 9 through 11 expounds on. And it expounds on that specifically for new covenant Gentile Christian believers. As an attorney, what does it mean to you when God says in the New Testament uh, that in reference to Israel, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance? As an attorney, what does that mean? That means that he cannot take away the gifts that he's put on Israel, nor the calling on Israel, and and. Specifically, how I get to that as an attorney is context. Context is everything. You know, we all love to quote this verse when it concerns our own gifts and callings. And yes, we can, in an expanded way, apply that on a certain level to individual believers. But we cannot neglect the fundamental context in which that promise appears, which is concerning God's promises and covenant to Israel. Uh, You know, and I know you feel this way, but my heart goes out to how the Palestinians are being used by their own Arab nations that have so much money. Uh, They're being used by their own leaders who take the billions of dollars the U.S. and other countries are are handing them and just put it in their own bank accounts, Uh, how the, the Palestinians have been left on purpose by the Arab nations to live in squalor when the, the, the sheiks are running around with the wealth of the world, I mean, they are being used. So what should I, as, as a believer in the Messiah, as a believer that God wants the Jewish people in the land of Israel, what should my position be with the Palestinians? Well, first of all, your position is one of realizing the reality that you just described. And it's a reality that I document extensively in the book and on the book's website, um, but also just convey in simple language in the book itself. This is the reality. We have to, uh, we can't live in denial anymore. We have to realize that our tax dollars <laughs> are supporting the, you know, the Palestinian peoples being used as pawns by the larger Arab Muslim world. Now, as Christians, first thing we need to do is pray. We need to pray. Pray for Israeli and especially Israeli messianic social justice organizations that are actually advocating on behalf of the Palestinians and trying to... uh, clarify to the nations of the world what is really happening behind the scenes. Now, I'm not talking about liberal, left-wing Israeli movements that sadly might even deny, you know, that the scriptures are the word of God and therefore don't even think about God's covenant with Israel. I'm talking about messianic Israeli Jewish social justice advocates. There aren't a many, uh, too many, but pray for them. 
secondly, there are a number of us involved in reconciliation efforts with Palestinian Christians. And, you know, we're at the beginning stages because our theologies are so different much of the time. Pray for that, because we do love each other as brothers and sisters, but that love needs to mature in the Lord. And pray for the minority of Palestinian Christians who do genuinely love God and love Israel. Well, you know, one of the hopes that I see, one of the wonderful things that I see, and I know you put it in your book, is Jews and Palestinians are having dreams and visions of Jesus, and many of these Palestinians become such strong lovers of Jesus and lovers of what Jesus loves, the Jewish people in the land of Israel. But tell me just briefly about the lies in the media. Oh, my. Well, you know, there is a whole—there um, have been some whole exposés that have been done in the past several years to expose how the Palestinian media, which is highly censored, anything that is officially released has to be cleared by the government, there is no freedom of press, highly distorted in order to present the Arab-Palestinian-Israeli conflict in a cause that is favorable to the Palestinians and highly unfavorable to Israel, and, and frankly, what they're doing many times is outright lying. There's just no way to whitewash it. They are. Give me one example. I know you have many in your book. Okay. Well, just one example. This is kind of a comical example. During the last war with Gaza at the end of 2012, Palestinians were posting on social media different photos and videos um, that they were representing to be live, real shots of Israeli so-called abuse against so-called Gazan innocent civilians. And what we found, what was found out uh, within a matter of days is that some of the footage and some of the photos actually depicted Jewish-Israeli terror victims um, from, previous, from the previous intifada, the Arab uprising of terror in the early 2000s. Those were Jews that were being depicted as Arab victims. That's just one. Um, another one I just have to mention, because it's, this is the one that's comical, is that there was a, a video of um, an, uh, a Muslim in Gaza that was being felled, apparently, by an abusive Israeli soldier. And so we watch him clutching his chest and falling to the ground, and his comrades are surrounding him. And in the background, you know, there are gunshots. And toward the end of the video, we see him pick himself up, brush himself off, put his arms around his friends, and then they walk off. Well, that video came down about 24 hours after it went up. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that we see. And my question is, if the Israeli abuse that's alleged is in fact so great, why do we have to go to such lengths to artificially portray it? Well, that's pretty logical, but this whole thing isn't logical. It's not logical that the world is turning against the Jew in Israel, except God says. It's a final conflict of, uh, of darkness and light that's going on right before our very eyes. That's why I'm so excited about your fresh approach. You're, you have material here that they cannot get in any other place. It's called, this book is called Why Still Care About Israel by Sandy Toplinsky. And there is information here 
that for you to understand what is going on in the world, understand what God is up to, understand that if you don't understand Israel, you will not understand God. It's that simple. You'll find yourself, you could walk in miracles, but they will not be the miracles that God's looking for if you are on the wrong side of the fence involving the Jew in Israel. The book and the artist rendering of the compassion of Jesus for the Jewish people, that when I saw this, I had to get it on an exclusive basis. And we, we have the picture of Jesus on the other side of the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and an Orthodox Jew on his side of the Western Wall praying, and they're almost touching hands. And you can see Jesus praying. The spiritual scales come off of, 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 of their eyes. But we're at the fullness of the Gentile age. We're at the time the spiritual scales are coming off the eyes of Jewish people. I've got to get the book and the artist rendering framed into your hands immediately for a gift of $40. This is Shabbat broadcast. The Lord, he's blessing you right now. The Lord, he's smiling upon you right now. The Lord is filling you with his compassion for the Jew in Israel right now. The Lord is gifting you right now. The Lord is surrounding you with his favor right now. The Lord is giving you his peace, his completeness in the name that is above every name. Yeshua HaMashiach Tzikinu, Jesus the Messiah, right now. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.